One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family... From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. For the past few weeks, actually for the past few months, uh, Dad and I have been straying offshore and dealing with lots of true crime cases outside the borders of Australia. But this week we are returning... We're returning to a place uh, which we still call home. Dad, I was trying to sandwich in a Qantas reference. Remember those Qantas ads from back in the, I think, the 80s or 90s, where there were those kids in the beatific little white shirts singing, I still call Australia home, um, as they stood on various landmarks? You're not a big fan of uh, outward signs of patriotism or choreography or close harmony singing, so I assume those ads really... (laughs) You are so (laughs) funny, Paul. You've just just not hit the nail on the head. (laughs) Wait, you find them inspiring? Yes, I find that particular rendition yeah. of the, uh, the Australian something or other choir <laughs> yeah, okay. singing all over the world, uh-huh. it, it's touching. Is it? And when I was working at the Sydney Opera House during the millennium, yes, and they had that boy soprano singing on top of the sail... Of the Sydney Opera House. Oh, that doesn't sound safe. You can't say that that didn't affect people. I guess what I'm saying is that if you're an outside... Look, the fact is that nobody nobody listening to this show doesn't know the iconic Qantas commercials where I still call Australia Home was sung. But part of the reason Qantas is such an iconic brand in Australia, partly it's a brilliant branding exercise. You know, there's a kangaroo. It's red and white. It's classic. They've been uh, our main carrier airline for... God, a long time. I remember when Anset used to exist. And I remember, in fact, I believe Julian was a... Was Julian a pilot for Qantas or did he fly for a different airline? No, he flew for Anset until they went went uh, feed up. Okay. Yes, but he was... A, as were quite a few detectives that I knew. What's the link? Why, why do you think that happens? I don't know. I, but I just know quite a few detectives that went on to become pilots. Okay, it's, it's, and I know it's interesting. You and he had uh, your pilot's licenses. Look, the, what I'm trying to get at, Dad, is uh, today we are talking about a 
I would say, fairly unusual true crime story which revolves around Qantas. And for those of you listening outside of Australia, and there are a lot of you, you've probably heard of Qantas. But as I was mentioning before, there is a ad campaign that ran in the 90s, which basically tied Qantas to Australia's national identity in a way that was inextricable. But before that, several decades before that, Qantas had something pretty odd happen to them. Dad, this is a really weird story. I don't want to kind of tread on your toes here. So without further ado, could you please walk us through this comedy of errors, I guess you would call it? Well, it's a comedy of errors. Um, Paul, do you recall when you kids were little, we used to watch a certain American kind of supernatural show? X-Files? No. Pre, Pre-X-Files, back down in the 60s. Um, by Rod oh, Serling. Oh, the Twilight Zone, yes, of course. Mm. And mm. I was obsessed with it. Yeah. They did about 180 episodes. Listeners, Rod Serling, um, after this podcast, um, if you don't know about him, check him out. And he made a movie in the 60s. And it's a movie he made that inspired the story that we're about to tell you. And it inspired two more stories. And he, up until the day he died, Mm -hmm. in fact, he made some reference points about the movie because of what it then led people to do. Hang on, which episode are you referring to? Which uh, Twilight Zone story? It's not an episode. The film. The film. It's a movie that he, he, he wrote and produced. And Hang directed. on, so it's not, it's not the Twilight Zone? No, no, but I'm just saying that for people that don't know, if you, if you know Rod Serling, you'll tie mm. it in with the Twilight Zone. Okay. But he did a, uh, dare I say it, a blockbuster uh, film in the 60s and had a very, very big cast. We're talking some of Hollywood's greatest were in this film. Is this the, the Doomsday f- Flight? Yes. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And do you know yeah. that he, he's, this is how profound, listeners, the making of the movie and what it went on to inspire certain criminals mm-hmm. to mirror the concepts portrayed in the movie. Rod Serling said, and this is a very extreme um, statement, and I quote, during the height of uh, this particular case we're about to talk about, he he told an American newspaper that he would have preferred to have never been born. How's that? Oh, God. Because the story we're about to tell, and I did not know about this story. You contacted me. I'm going to um, say here and now, it's one of the most audacious and brilliant, unbelievably clever, ballsy (laughs) things I've ever ever heard of and it almost they almost got away with it so we have to go back to England and there's a gentleman called Peter Macari who was born in Devon and he was just a sort of a he was sort of in and out of you know he got into trouble occasionally and then in July 1969 he gets arrested for indecent assault Okay, they release him on bail, which is which is fairly common. But he owned a fish and chip shop, 
and God knows how many fish and chip shops there are in England. Now, what he does, he sells it to his brother for around about $6,500. Also, it's... Just quickly, in terms of the six and a half thousand, I think something worth noting in this story is the value of obviously inflation is I think the, mm. the value of money um, and the val- and like value of property and the, the the amount which certain things are worth back then versus back now is going to I think be worth pointing out. Oh, so mm. because there is a monetary figure tied to this story, and I won't spoil it what it is or where it is, but the, the monetary figure in question um, in today's value is incalculable. But mm. six and a half thousand in today's money, that's the fact that you could get a shop for six and a half thousand. I remember um I was listening to a podcast talking about real estate and they mentioned that you could buy a house in Sydney for about $15,000 at the time. Um, mm. A big one. So, Well, yes. Paul, mum and my parents, your mm-hmm. grandparents, they bought their yeah. house in Beaconhall for $19,000. And that is a big, well, was, well, still is. It's, it's still there. It's just not in the family anymore. Big, big, big house. I Do you understand why I'm bringing the... <laughs> I do bring them. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, let's just put a pin in that for now. Please continue. Yes. So he he gets a um, false passport. It, it, it's, it never ceases to amaze me how back in those days you just mm-hmm. could, if you knew people, just get false passports. And he yeah. um, he travels. So he skips bail. Basically, he doesn't want to go to court. Right. And he comes out to Australia, and he uses quite a few aliases. And some of his aliases were like Peter King, Peter Young, mm. Brian Adams, great musician, William Day. But he's the most people that knew him. He was they knew him as Peter King. Now, what happens is he he's got a friend down here, and they they go on this trip, like a road trip. Mm-hmm. Now, he had a, and this is also to be considered and just stored in the in the sort of the recesses of your minds, is that he had a vehicle not dissimilar to a combi van. And it was fully kitted out, like a camper van. Okay. He, and he does a road trip. And he goes up into Queensland. Mm-hmm. And it's whilst he's in Queensland... In his uh, like camper van, mm-hmm. on this tiny little black and white TV, what do you think is the movie he watches? Ah, the Rod Serling film. He watches the Rod Serling film. And there he hatches a plan. Now, if it was to write a book about a book you'd read, that would be called plagiarism. But in this particular case... Everything is set out in the movie. Um, should we give the premise of the film now, Paul, or should we keep going? How about this? At the end, once everything's unfolded, you can walk us through beat for beat the story of the film and let's see how closely he got. Yeah? Mm, okay. What do you think? Well, hang on. <clears throat> set up the... Just, well, you know what? No. You just, just go from his perspective. Yeah? Because what I want to do is I, I and listeners... I think it's a lot more fun if you're not familiar with this iconic story to experience it kind of from the perspective of the public of the day mm. who, who just sort of witnessed it in, in progress. Mm. Well, the, the premise of the film mm. is to put a bomb on board a plane, but it's a particularly special bomb. 
and it's designed in such a way that if the plane goes below a certain height oh the bomb will be activated so our our um our man of the moment our our bad man uh the the young guy he's in his um early 20s i must just say at this juncture paul that when he was in sydney prior to leaving on this uh this road trip yeah what he does he invests quite a bit of his money in a fiberglass factory in Brookvale, huh. which is very close to where we all used to live. And there were at the time a lot of surfboard manufacturers. There were probably 30 in the early 70s. It was, it mm-hmm. was, a, I, it was probably the hub in Australia for, for surfboard manufacturing, which were all fiberglass based. And he had this factory, but then he decides to sell the factory. Uh, the business doesn't do so well. And with that, the money that he got, the sort of the proceeds, he, he buys his, his fitted out camper van, mm-hmm. goes up north, sees the film. He's got a friend. He goes to, once he's got the idea, he then thinks, okay, I need, he's in, the genesis of this whole story is that he wants to make a bomb. So what he does, he goes to Mount Isa, which is a, a mining town. Mm-hmm. He befriends a miner. The miner sells him some sticks of dynamite used he, for you know blowing shit up getting money yeah okay I understand. that's right and yep. he gives the guy a hundred dollars which i guess at the time would be equivalent to maybe at least two to three weeks wage wages mm-hmm. he then he has to buy get his hands on what's called an altimeter an altimeter Oh, that's what tells you. That's what tells you how high you are, right? That's an altitude reader, high so, or low, because when idea, I, right, yeah, because yep. I used to use an altimeter when I did skydiving, and yep. it's a device that it's all based on um, sea level, mm-hmm. okay, okay, and you you zero it out depending on where you are, so you need to if you're flying, um, going to jump out of a plane in a mountainous area you don't want to know what sea level is because if you opened the parachute in a mountainous region at the height you'd crash into the mountain (laughs) yes okay so now i was thinking about this this morning and when i did skydiving back in the 1970s you could actually and it was relatively cheap you could buy a device uh that if you became unconscious whilst you were skydiving yeah it would automatically there'd be a sort of a small, a really small explosion on your back. What? Yeah, which would deploy your parachute whilst you were unconscious. And it would save you. Huh. Isn't that incredible? So that That's just amazing. Goes, it goes to show you that this type of technology we're talking is not super sophisticated. Okay. So what the guy does, he comes back to Sydney. Yep. And he's got a friend. And the friend's name is Macri or Macari and his friend pointing. Mm. Um, so Macri ap- approaches his friend and says, look, I'm going to give you $50,000 if you'll help me with this extortion. The extortion is going to be that they're going to make a bomb. Yeah. They're going to put the bomb on board a Qantas plane mm-hmm. and 
they're going to ask for a massive ransom of and to sort of tie in what you were saying before about you know the money it was yeah. half a million dollars which today's around about 16 million okay and it had to be it had to be in cash so mm-hmm. what they do is they go back to sydney and they um the, the the plan was to and this is the part of the story that is so clever so extraordinary makari gets his friend to type up three letters and he makes using real dynamite he makes a bomb and he connects it up to an altimeter he then contacts the general manager at Qantas okay mm-hmm. And he says to the general manager that there's a plane on board, sorry, there's a bomb on board a plane that's flying from Sydney to Hong Kong. If the plane goes beneath 20,000 feet, Mm -hmm. everyone on board, there are around about 115 people on board, clearly everyone's going to die. The plane is flying from Sydney to Hong Kong, when it's mm-hmm. out over the Australian uh, desert, the captain gets a message. So they're treating this very, very seriously. Now, why are they treating this not like a hoax? This is the part of the story I feel, and the more I think about it, the more astounded I am. And also, we must remember that whilst I'm talking, whilst you and I are telling this story, Paul, Imagine, listeners, that there's a plane flying from Sydney to Hong Kong and it's only up there for a finite period of time. At a certain point, it is going to start its descent into Hong Kong. So everyone has to sort of... This is one of those things that I can't quite get my head around is how they manage to do everything so quickly. The first thing that they did, they went to a locker at Kingsford Smith Airport. Inside the locker... Three letters mm-hmm. and a bomb. Now, it's fully wired up. What the police do is they disconnect the altimeter from the dynamite. Mm-hmm. In place of the dynamite, they connect a light bulb. They then get a plane, a, a big plane. They take this device up. And then guess what happens in the plane, the test plane. This is all happening in real time within hours of getting the call. Yep. There's an actual plane with real people in it flying around. They divert the plane to Queensland, to Brisbane. As the test plane with the in place of the dynamite is the light bulb, when the plane gets down to 5,000 metres or 6,000 yeah. metres around about 20,000 feet, guess what happens? Yeah. The light bulb goes off goes on then they realize that shit it is real there is a it, everyone's going to die on the plane they've proven that this test bomb actually works okay so just to summarize the demand gets made the bomb is in the air the the premise has been established they're like they've been told if the plane goes below you know uh that height everybody's gonna die so they test it using the bomb in the locker just to be clear was this bomb in the locker given to them by the um by the people on the plane correct do you not agree that 
it's so clever to give the authorities mm-hmm. an identical device. They take and go it up, prove it. Go and test they prove it. it. And they, and if all you don't of believe sudden, us, yeah. And they go, okay, so it's real. Mm-hmm. They then say to they're dealing with a particular uh, very senior member of Qantas. Mm-hmm. And they say, we want half a million dollars in $20 bills. That's now a fact. They divert the plane, as I said, to Brisbane. They then discovered that Brisbane, in worst case scenario, if there's a, an aircraft incident, i.e. Mm-hmm. crash, uh, that they feel as though the safest place in Australia where they can really get things um, from a from a, sort of that catastrophic event that may occur, they, they tell them to come back to Sydney. They got five Royal Australian Navy ships to to mill around um, the airport mm-hmm. at Port Botany. They had 12 fire engines and they had 15 or so ambulances. They were preparing for a catastrophic event. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the captain, he knew the story. He knew he had to keep the plane above 20,000 feet. Heading back to Sydney, imagine being a passenger on board the plane when the crew, of which there are 11 crew, mm-hmm. start taking all the luggage out of all the bags the overhead in the overhead compartments. And the, the passengers are sort of watching all this and the only thing the crew say to the passengers is, we're looking for a small object. That's all they say. If I had been on board that plane, I'd be thinking, yeah, they're looking for a bomb. It then gets really, really bizarre and quite surreal, like something out of a Twilight Zone series. They start tearing up all the carpet in the plane. Hang on. They then remove every single light bulb in the main Hang on. cabin. <laughs> Doesn't this institute like fully blown no panic, panic on the plane? Nothing. What? All the pas- the passengers. They interviewed a lot of the pas- clearly a lot of the passengers, uh-huh. which is sort of giving it away a little bit. <laughs> but let's just say that uh, there was no panic. They're pulling out every single panel. They're literally completely denuding the interior of the aircraft while in flight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just... can you Listeners, can we all imagine what it would be like to be on a plane when the crew start going through and just basically 
pulling every panel, light bulb, all the carpet. They just go crazy and and sort of they're 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 just completely obsessed to try and find this bomb on the plane Mm -hmm. and meanwhile back in sydney uh the police got involved so makari he is in constant contact with with qantas with the head of qantas and he explains to them uh the the procedure for the drop-off now this is a very brazen man. He and his offsider went to a car rental place the night before uh, under the guise of hiring a, a combi van. Okay? They sort of oh, check it out. A shagging wagon, as you used to say. Kind of. They then <laughs> come back later that night uh-huh. and steal the keys, take the combi. Yep. Makari then disguises himself with a wig, glasses, and a fake beard. And they had four police cars sort of set up near. Now, you'd think in this situation they do the drop-off in a very, very discreet location, like hmm. rendezvous in some, you know, secret dark car park or something. No, no, it was out the front of Qantas in Chifley Square out. in the middle of the CBD in Sydney. I will show you one day where this <laughs> took place. It is a, it's an A grade, yeah, um, iconic, busy, crowded location. Okay, so they've got four uh, police cars, but Makari mm-hmm. says, and this shows me that he was extremely smart. And we've often discussed in the past about the IQ of criminals can can be one sixty, one seventy. Um, They've just something in their lives happened, and they've just taken taken a different path. He mm-hmm. says that not only are we going to have the the combi with with um with him as the driver, but there's going to be a second car that you won't know about, nondescript, that will be observing from a distance every single thing. And if we see the police, it's all over. Everyone dies. The general manager of Qantas. What happens is. They get the staff to write a check made out to the Reserve Bank of Australia, which happens to be very close as well, for mm-hmm. half a million dollars. As I said, $16 million in today's money in $20 bills, um, which is two massive why suitcases. Uh, well, I don't think they had 50s back then. And of course, really? the, lower, the lower the denomination, Paul, the easier it is to circulate, to put them huh. back into society. Were they not? If you're getting bills, I assume they they kept um, track of the whatever registration. No, they had to be unmarked, or... used. Huh. They they. The thing about the Reserve Bank, and not a lot of people will know this, but the Reserve Bank is the place where used notes go to die. Okay. Right. So money yeah. goes out of the Reserve Bank, and in today's world, it it feeds the banks, which in turn feed the ATMs. Mm. Okay. The cash, so it's printed in Australia goes to the Reserve Bank, armoured trucks come in, get the actual cash, yeah, yeah. take them to, to, to banks and ATMs all over the country. Okay. That's mm-hmm. what happens. But when, you know, you've had notes that are slightly torn, creased, crumpled, used, worn. Well, back yep. then they were paper notes, mm-hmm. not, not, not the polymer note that we have today, which has a longer lifespan. You know, you'd put them in the washing. You know that I accidentally burnt $2,000 in 20s. 
Yes, once I do. And yep. made, a, made a tidy profit on that particular thing. But, mm-hmm. um, but money comes back to the Reserve Bank and they destroy it. They punch holes through it, they incinerate it, they do all sorts of things. So they've got access to unmarked 20s, two massive suitcases. The general manager is told to go out, it's around about quarter to six mm-hmm. in the evening. And from research I've done, there were quite a few senior staff that were in on it and they just had to sort of be looking out the windows down at their general manager, um, walking out with these two bags. And the signal was that a combi would pull up right outside the Qantas building. A gentleman inside, one person only, in disguise, would then remove the car keys from the ignition. He'd, with his right arm, he would reach out into sort of into the air and mm-hmm. dangle his keys. Just all, that, no, no conversation, just dangle these keys. That's the well, code. Like, like, like coquettishly sort of go... Yeah, just dangling them, just sort of jiggling them. And and that's the signal for the guy to walk up and then he just puts the two suitcases Mm -hmm. with um, $500,000 cash. Now, there were four unmarked police cars in the vicinity that were supposed to be part of the whole operation, but there was a miscommunication. None of them were notified. They're all just standing around like a bottle of stale reshers. And the guy takes off with all the money. There's no there's no police surveillance. They, he's, he's gone. And oh boy. then, and this is kind of a cool thing, mm-hmm. he then contacts Qantas. He phones them at quarter past six. Guess what he says? What? There's no bomb on board. You can land. And the plane lands. No dramas. <laughs> Oh my god! And they have effectively uh-huh. got away with a crime that I would describe as the perfect crime. Look, okay, answer, yeah. answer me this. Answer me this. An attempted bombing obviously has a far well. I'm assuming it has a much lower threshold if you get caught, right? If there's no actual bomb, or am I totally no, naive there? No, that's that's you're still you're rat shit. Okay, it's like murder and attempted murder. It's mm, okay. They're both pretty heavy. Um, mm. No, no, he, if they get caught. But they, they've they got all this money in 20s. Mm-hmm. And it could have worked out. It could have been fantastic. They could, they, no one was injured, except perhaps one might argue psychologically. Mm-hmm. But they have to dispose of the money. So one of the things that, Macari does is he, he's working on this like doing a renovation on a property and he it's like something out of a sort of a spoof movie he he hides a portion of the money mm-hmm. behind an old fireplace and bricks it in brilliant then he had access to a house in Balmain mm-hmm. and he put money under the floorboards but then he left that house and then so he's put it, sort of putting money everywhere, but it, clearly he gives his his compatriot. Yeah, the money he gives promised, him fifty thousand right? dollars as promised. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and the guy, his offsider who lives in an apartment in Bondi, mm-hmm. he's well known by the local community. Uh, 
you know, he's, he's a sort of a knockabout guy. He's in his 20s. And he goes out and oh. buys an E-Type Jaguar. Not the smartest choice, okay. An E-Type Jaguar yep. sticks out like dog's balls even today. If you see an E-Type Jaguar mm-hmm. today, it's a head turner. Yep. That's, if you go back... 50 years yeah. and so this guy he, he rocks up to his local garage mm. the the petrol attendant the guy that fills up because back in those days you'd drive into a service station and someone would actually put the petrol in your car and the guy thinks hang on a sec that's, uh, that's a bit out of character this E-Type Jaguar mm. then the following week the guy rocks up with another new car Oh, God damn it. And in this particular case, it was a car called a, um, a GT Falcon. And the GT Falcon back in the early 70s, those cars, particularly the Phase 3 GDHO Falcon, is now worth around about $800,000. So we're talking a really, really special car. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's got the E-Type Jag and he's got, he's got the, the Ford Falcon. Yep. And the, um, the attendant notifies the police. Good call. And says, look, um, this guy's acting out of character. And the police, it's, it's not rocket science. The car's registered in his name. They go mm-hmm. to his apartment and they arrest him. And the first thing the guy does is dob his mate in. Clearly. Because the police would have said, look, you know, um, if you give us all the good information, uh, we will we'll look after you. Mm-hmm. So... Eventually, both parties are arrested. They manage to get back around about half of the money. There was a couple that lived in a place in Balmain. Mm-hmm. Everyone's aware. Sydney's buzzing. That There's a big reward. They had four and a half thousand people give information in the hope of getting the reward. But there's a couple in Balmain... And yep. they call the police and they say, because they knew that this Macari had been in this apartment previously, this, this, mm-hmm. this house, and yep. they, they're concerned. The police come around and they, and they lift up these weird sort of floorboards that seemed a bit odd. And mm. sure enough, there's money. They eventually go to this uh, house that they found out Macari had been sort of doing a bit of renovation on. And they saw the fresh, uh, you know, wall near the fireplace. Mm. They smashed it in and they got around about $120,000. Incredible. Okay, listeners, they they go to court and they are both found guilty. Makari gets 15 years. His offsider gets seven. Okay. At the end of the 15-year sentence, Makari is extradited back to Britain. Okay. Can you guess what plane he flies? I'm going to say Qantas. Yes, he's on a Qantas flight. Can you imagine now, what that flight would have been? <laughs> oh, unbelievable. But, but here's the thing, and this is the part of the story that I have not been able to ascertain whether anyone else has thought about this. Mm-hmm. But for me, the elephant in the room in this story yes. is what happened to the other quarter of a million dollars. And I, my strong gut feeling is 
that the police found it, without a doubt. That's my opinion, based and? on the corruption in the New South Wales Police Force at the time, oh, which was endemic. I yep, yep, yep. So mm. I believe that the detectives shared in the spoils. Mm. And... I love that. And I'm even going to go one step further. I'm going to put it out there that the, the commissioner at the time, Merv Wood... Mm-hmm. Careful. I'm thinking to myself, listeners, that don't you think it's a bit weird that the four police cars, detectives' vehicles, with detectives unmarked, were in that area? They, they knew about it. They were supposed to get the call to, to, to follow. I guess it's possible that senior Qantas management didn't want the police to blow it. The police did not have a good reputation at the time. Or is it more insidious to mm-hmm. think that because the police commissioner was involved in this up to his eyeballs and he had to be I guess because it was such an, an important issue where a police commissioner would actually be sort of on the ground mm-hmm. dealing with the sort of the minute to minute situation but is it kind of possible that maybe the police were thinking you know what uh, we'll let them take the money and then one day when we arrest them, yeah. we, we, we will then have an opportunity to, uh, to put our little dirty grubby fingers into the pot. That's, that's how I feel. I don't believe there, there are theories that quarter of a million dollars was buried, or not buried, but sort of wrapped up in some waterproof um, you know, material and dumped off Bondi Beach, sort of hidden out in, in, uh, past the breakers. I find that... Mm, not plausible. Okay. So I feel that the police did find the rest of the money and and perhaps um, some police um, got to live off the ill-gotten gains and were a lot more prudent about drip-feeding the money back into their private lives. It's a theory uh, or somewhere in Sydney, hidden in possibly a private residence, Mm-hmm. is an extraordinary amount of money. And the 20s are still good. You can still use them. Really? Yes, because it's decimal currency. So uh, mind you, it would raise the ire of any bank if you walked in with quarter of a million in 20s. Mm-hmm. So again, you'd have, to be, you'd have to do it over a very, very long period of time. But it would be worth it, making small deposits. So it's a so really actually- fascinating story, Paul. They made a movie about it as well. Um, they did. In 1986 called Call Me Mr. Brown and Qantas tried to stop it getting released. But it came out anyway. So, um, yeah. Rod, Rod Serling uh, petitioned 500 cinemas in yeah. America. To, mm-hmm. He begged them, please don't show this film. It inspired two other cases almost identical. And you and I did a podcast a year or so ago about the very famous... Mm-hmm. B.J. Cooper. Now, this Cooper story... Wait, B, B, you mean B.D. Cooper? B.D. Cooper. Yeah. The guy that... Unbelievable. Actually got the money and jumped out of the plane. Mm-hmm. Incredible. But that story came after this story. And we've been doing true crime podcasts now for five years. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe I didn't know this story. It's bananas. It's bananas. Uh, you... and it's it's, it's yeah. just so... Don't you think it's so clever? And one of the things that 
that astounds me in this particular story is the yep. way the police managed to do everything so in, and, and how everyone came together. They took a took the device up in another, um, you know, big aircraft to test yep. it. Imagine the horror when it got down to that 20,000 feet and the light came on. Then they realized yeah. it's so clever. I tip my hat to the, the perpetrator. Can I just say, uh, I was listening to a couple of friends uh, do go on. They have a really great podcast and they heard that when the police were heading down to uh, check on the, to do the, the exchange with the, with the disguised guy in the van, mm. um, that somebody had pressed all the buttons in the elevator. And so it took them longer to get down than, than they than they would oh, have liked. Oh, classic. Yeah. Oh, look, that's so <laughs> unbelievable. Now, what I'd... <laughs> then <laughs> there was a suggestion, actually, that it wasn't part of the heist's plan. Literally, there'd been a kid in the elevator before. And <laughs> just run his hand down the wall. Uh, it's one of those really iconic cases which seems... Look, Dad, I won't lie. Um, we've been doing this podcast for a long time now. We are in season five, and season five is, I think, the same length as almost all of our other seasons combined. Uh, this is... It's such a great, fun show. But sometimes, listeners, as you know, I lament the fact that many of our podcasts seem to revolve around horrifying, violent crimes, which have a high body count, or a very cruel, uh, like a litany of cruelty perpetrated against, particularly the weak and the vulnerable. There is something so strangely, don't get me wrong, still terrible, but there is something strangely wholesome about this particular crime because, let's face it, it was a fake bomb. It's got that kind of sort of... It's got that sort of dopey Ocean's Eleven vibe, which I am a big fan of. So, to that end, listeners, if you know of any other crimes which do not involve violence, I'm talking big, high-scale crimes, very ambitious, could have gone horribly wrong if you want, but just I'm, I'm desperately seeking Australian true crime, which isn't deeply emotionally traumatic. And I think this case does definitely qualify, and I will absolutely not be thinking about it on my next Qantas flight which is very soon. It's quite soon. Anyway, uh, Dad, thank you so much for joining me. And everybody, thanks for joining us on this very strange episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Please have a wonderful week and we will see you at the end of the week for Loose Ends. In the meantime, stay safe and we will see you soon. Bye, everyone. Cheerio.